Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Normally at our church, <clears throat> we go through series, but towards the end of the year, a weird thing happens where there's a bunch of holidays and special commemorative Sundays that we do, and so towards the end of the year, I just generally preach one-off messages. And this morning, I want to give you a message called always, always. I think it's a really cool word, always. It could actually be abused and misused, you know, sometimes thrown out as an accusation. You always. So it's not always a welcome word, but I think always can be a really powerful word. I want to ask you, do you have any standing rules for life? Rules that define you, things that without even thinking, you just say, this is how I live, this is what I do. And rules like this, you would complete the sentence, I always blank. I always blank. I, I was just thinking about different examples. I, I know some people who say, I always wait for everyone else to be served before I start eating. You know people who would really feel strongly about that? Like, hey, not everyone's gotten their food. and they're, you, you, Are you with me? Are you guys... Right? So, I mean, there are people who feel really strongly about that, so that when you start to eat your food, they're like, <clears throat> because I always. And when we have these always rules, what they point to is something really important. These always rules in our lives show us, uh, this is who I see myself to be. That by standing behind this rule, I'm broadcasting a message to the world this is something important, not just for me, but I believe it should be important for everyone. And it also has another thing. It doesn't just reveal who I want to be, who I am. It actually reinforces who I want to be. And so these always rules stand as guidelines or structure for us so that we can remember on a regular basis these values, these practices matter. And people should live this way. I like always rules. I think they help you get to know somebody's character and heart. It gives you a little introduction to what makes them tick. And I think it's worthwhile sharing our always rules. And families have always rules, don't they? Families have always rules. And I think companies have always rules. Some neighborhoods have always rules, or at least someone who thinks they're making all the always rules. And I believe the kingdom of God, the family of God, also has always rules. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, this is the kind of Bible passage a lot of people like because it's super short. Three verses, 19 words in English. Here's what it says. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In just nine English words, or seven in Greek, Paul gives us three things which, if you follow Jesus, these are things that should become for us always rules. Now, that's kind of compelling, but kind of not, because if you actually look at these rules, I don't know about you, but when I first read these many years ago as a high school student, I was perplexed and a little bit offended. I could not understand how you could command such things. Just like the command to love, I'm like, okay, you can command me to love, 
but I've always understood love to be a feeling. So how can you tell me to love something or someone? Love just happens. So the idea that God commands these things that feel like they should just arise naturally, it was confusing to me. Were any of you confused by that? That God says things like, love everyone all the time. Forgive. And here he says, rejoice and pray and give thanks always. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we have to unpack that because if you're a religious person, at first you're like, amen. And then you walk out of church and live real life and by Sunday afternoon you're like, I don't know about this. Rejoice always, even when Mitch Trubisky consistently overthrows When your bears lose again and when you have yet another argument, you find your kid's room a complete mess. Do you know what I'm talking about? Things sound so good in church, but they sound so strange in the wild. And I think we really need to unpack what is God really saying when he says to us, rejoice always, pray always, and give thanks always. Let me walk you through those three things. The first rule is rejoice always. In verse 16, Paul gives this really audacious command. And the implication is rejoice in every possible situation, whether it's a good situation or it's a bad situation. Now that seems really strange to me, but the fact that God's word commands it implies that it is possible to get there, right? It's, have you ever had one of those video games where you hit a level and you're like, I, I've, this has happened to me before because I'm a gamer. I get to a level and I go, this is stupid. This is an impossible level. But the fact that there is a level after that and people have gotten there absolutely implies it feels impossible, but it can't be because more exists. The fact that it's there implies that it is possible to do it. So I know that a thing may sound and feel impossible, but that doesn't make it impossible completely. We need to understand how it's possible that such a thing can be done. Human beings and most mammals instinctively have a happiness response when good things happen. Every day when I come home, the first thing I do is I let my dog out of her crate and she knows that she's going to get a pet. Like a, I, I, I really uh, scratch her head. I say really soothing things to her and then I let her out so she could empty her bladder. And then she usually, and I don't always tell my family this, but she usually gets a couple of treats just for being her. She doesn't have to do anything just because I like her. She gets a couple of treats, which is why she's really loyal to me above everyone else in the family. She gets lots of goodies from me. And when I'm doing all those things, dogs have like this built-in thing. that they, they can't help themselves. Her, her tail's just doing this like crazy. What I see in that wagging tail is this inbuilt biological, chemical, natural response that when good things happen, good things happen in us. We're happy when happy-inducing things happen to us. And no command is necessary, Right? Well, sometimes a command is necessary. Like sometimes you give your kids a gift. It's really nice. They're like, thanks. And you're like, be happy. Show some gratitude. I, I understand that. But most of the time when good things happen, 
It's very natural to rejoice. No command has to be given to say, hey, you should rejoice in positive circumstances. But the reason Paul gives the command is because he says, even when things don't go your way, it's really important to remember as a Christ follower that rejoicing is not just the natural, biological, chemical reaction to happy things. And here's the truth. I've known a lot of people over the years, and I've fallen into this trap consistently. That though I follow Jesus, I have an eternal hope that I'm a new creation. Something is happening in me that didn't used to be there. I can easily fall into the trap that I won't be happy until things happen to me that will make anybody happy. That confers no difference or advantage for following Jesus. It's the same as I would have been in a godless world. Without Christ, without salvation, I would still experience life that way. That if bad things happen, I'm going to be upset. If good things happen, I'm going to be happy. But Paul is saying one of the greatest gifts that is made possible in Christ is that even when things are not going your way, real joy can be possible. Now here's, I I need to unpack that because it's really important how you understand what I just said and what Paul's trying to say here. Paul doesn't just command us to rejoice. And notice this, some translations say be joyful always. I don't like that translation because it seems to imply that you could be filled with an emotion on command. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's possible to just feel joy overflowing inside of me. But what he does say is rejoice. In other words, the emphasis is on what we do and how we express it, not what we feel or what we experience. Paul says in the testimony in the second letter to the Corinthians, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. He's describing suffering he and his team have gone through. And here's his testimony. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Do you feel a little skeptical when you hear stuff like that? Do you feel a little irritated when you hear stuff like that? Like, okay, this guy's saying something that sounds like we should say amen to it, but it feels a little dishonest. Is it really possible for such a statement to be true? It's the way I feel when I see a marathon runner describing the runner's high. Don't you just swear that that's, you're like, come on, give me a break. By mile 16, I have this euphoria. It's like being on drugs. Like, shut up. You're just trying to get me to jog, and it's not true. Or when I'm trying to describe to my kids that I derive real pleasure from reading. Like I read books, and it takes me to another place, and I, my mind is blown. Or when I tell fellow adults, I fantasize about going back to school. I wish I could be a student again. I just want to learn new things, and like, whatever. I thank God every day that I'm done with school. So when you hear other people describing a state of being that you cannot relate to, isn't it natural for us to assume they're kind of lying, they're manipulating us, they're trying to create a picture to, to soothe us, but it's not really honest. Because we can't experience it, we can't identify with it, it's irritating to hear because it seems like they're really not telling the truth. No sane human being can say things like that and be telling the truth. Have you ever had your heart ache truly? Like something super important to you was taken away and your heart was just, it's like physical pain. Have, have you ever had a heartache so bad that it felt physical to you? I have. I know many of you have. Probably all of us have. 
Have you ever felt in that moment, in that heart-tearing-apart pain, that you could say, but I always still have joy? Paul later testifies in his letter to the Romans, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. And here he begins to unpack how it's possible to rejoice even when things are bad. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Here's what Paul is saying if we unpack it. There's two, at least two really important reasons how we can actually rejoice in times of hardship. One is that the best parts of human character are forged in hardship. Some of the things that make you the most strong, the most resilient, the most attractive were not forged in comfort and happiness. They were forged because you went through hardship and survived it and learned what was needed. And it hardened you in the best possible ways. It strengthened you in the best possible ways. But that's not even the greatest reason for rejoicing because some of you are like, I would rather skip the suffering and be a little less a person of character. I've often felt like that, like, God, I would rather just be a little slouchier of a person and have less struggle. But what he says is, here's the real secret of rejoicing, is that it keys in on something that is always true, regardless of what's happening in our lives. That no matter what else is happening, the love of God for you is unshakable. It doesn't mean his love will always translate into changing your circumstances, but he stands with you all the time. And I know that that's what we're supposed to say in church, but you wonder, emotionally, practically speaking, how is that supposed to give me any real comfort? Let me give you an illustration of the way the remembrance of love strengthens the heart. When Jeannie and I were dating, for five and a half years, we were long distance, nonstop. We were never together living in the same town for the entirety of our relationship. That's hard. I think the longest we were ever in the same town together was one week during those five and a half years. How did I get through that? Because those were in the days before the internet. Gasp, right? I mean, no email, no texting, no cell phones. How did I get through? I had a stack of pictures. Actual pictures, not like on my phone. Like actual, you go to Walgreens and print them. And I... I, dug up a couple because I used to have this stack of photos and letters, love letters, really, that I keep in my study Bible. And it got me through seminary when I was really far from her. I went through some stuff, man, during seminary years, some pretty hard stuff. I was poor for the first time in my life. Uh, I was eating boiled cabbage and soy sauce with rice because that's all we could afford. Day after day, boiled cabbage and soy sauce sucks. It's just terrible. First day, I was like, oh, this is not bad. 80th day, I I couldn't handle it. And so I would regularly pull out these photos. I I I dug up a couple. I I scanned them. Here's one. Look how young. This is almost 30 years ago. Yeah, I I once looked like this. This is almost 30 years ago. Jeannie and I, when we were dating, here's another one. We were so young, so 
fresh and new. And, but here's the thing why I, I pull those pictures out, okay? is because I would look at them and remember, whatever junk I'm going through, soon this is all going to be over. I'm going to marry that girl. She loves me, and we're going to have a life together. And that got me through a lot of junk. I mean, this wasn't just some pie-in-the-sky idea. I knew for sure that that day was coming. I knew it in my heart. And it got me through a lot of stuff. That's just a human's love, but even that is super powerful. And what Paul is saying is true rejoicing doesn't just come from being lucky or being comfortable or being blessed or fortunate. The most sustainable, longest lasting rejoicing comes from being loved. You could have everything your heart desires, and if you don't have love, if you're not loved actively, your heart is shriveling inside. I've known so many people who have everything materially I could ever dream of. But the one thing they're missing is to be unconditionally, deeply loved. They, they don't believe or know that God loves them this way, and they don't really have a person in the world who loves them this way. What causes rejoicing even in hardship? It's not just the certainty that all my suffering will one day be over, but that even in the midst of it, this is an unchanging truth. I am more loved than I could possibly ever imagine. I appreciate what scholar Gordon Fee said in his book, God's Empowering Presence. He says, the emphasis on joy throughout the whole New Testament is not so much on the experience of joy, but the active expression of it. Meaning when Paul says rejoice always, he's not saying be happy always. How on earth could any thinking person command that? He's not saying experience joy. He's saying express joy. Because in the midst of suffering, you have two choices. You can give in to the suffering and let your whole life be defined by that struggle. Or you can look to God and key in on things that will always be true, no matter what you're going through. In good times and bad times, this one thing stands. I am loved by a God who will never, ever abandon me. And one day when the drama and the disappointment and the brokenness of this messed up world is over, I will be with him forever. Let me give you another thing that Paul commands. If you grew up in the Asian church, this makes you groan because it, it awakens memories of prayer meetings that would not end. I feel like we should have a little contest here. The longest prayer, consistent, straight-through prayer session you've ever been a part of. How many of you have had to pray continually for like a two-hour session? Okay. Three? Stay with me, not come. Four? Five? Six? Seven? Oh, my Lord. Marcus, were you a monkey one time? <laughs> All right, I love it. I love it. All right, so, Mark, so some of us have, I mean, like eight-hour sessions, nine-hour it's where you start hallucinating and you're not sure if you're in your body. And so I hear this command, pray always. I'm like, was Paul Korean? <laughs> or did he live in, in medieval Europe? Because it, it feels to me a little like it's, I groan when I hear that. I groan. It's important we understand what Paul means when he says pray continually. And though he says pray continually, 
it doesn't fit with my sermon title, so I'm just going to tell you. It's the same as saying, pray always. Let prayer be something that is a mark of your life on a regular basis. Now, I know what it does not mean. It cannot literally mean pray nonstop 24-7. Not only is that impractical, it's impossible. But some religious traditions actually try to accomplish this by teaching us to constantly be in a pseudo-state of prayer. Here's what I really think it means. It means don't give up on prayer even when everything in you wants to give up. Prayer, like everything, has a shelf life. There's a point at which we go, what's the point of continuing? You know this modern expression, I'm done. We didn't used to say that when I was growing up. Um, it wasn't, we weren't actually allowed to say it. <laughs> I had to raise no quitters. So this idea of being done just was so far away. You'd have to get really far down the tunnel of despair before you could ever say, I'm done. But it's become a thing today, a meme of, of a sort. You just go, hey, you know what? I've done as much as is reasonable to ask of anyone. I've tried, I failed, I've tried, I failed. I can't control all the variables. I'm done. It's a way of cutting off the conversation, saying this story is finished. I'm not done reading or writing it, but I'm just done caring about it. And it's such a temptation at some point in every hard story to just drop it all and say, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I'm done with it all. And what Paul is saying when he says, pray always, pray continually, is no matter how strongly you feel the temptation to say existentially, I'm done. Never give up on prayer, ever. Because to give up on prayer is to give up on God because you believe God's given up on you. If our prayer life consists only of asking God for things, what happens is our prayer life becomes, every single prayer becomes a test of whether God is actually good or faithful or kind or whether God loves me or not. When we reduce all of prayer to just asking God for things, it really narrows our view of who God is. It makes it actually harder and harder to know and see God at all. I love this cartoon I saw years ago. I saw this first at a Korean church. It was on a poster. And I was so happy to actually find it somewhere on the Internet. I, I think this picture is hilarious because the caption in Korean, which I erased, because who's going to, I mean, seriously. But what it says is, I can't see him. They say God's close, but I can't see him. I, I once met a man who had an eye disease, and what he said was, here's my experience, Dave. The world out of my right eye is shrinking to this tube. It's like if you took the, the cardboard tube from a roll of paper towels and put that over your eye, and that's all you got to see. So I can't see the periphery at all. I can only see one narrow field at a time, and it's so frustrating because so much of what is worth seeing in life you got to zoom out and see the whole thing. You go to the Grand Canyon with that eye disease, what are you going to see? It's, well, there's no point in going. Because the Grand Canyon requires a macro view, wide-angle lens to fully take in the majesty. When you look through a tube, all you're going to see is, that's a deep hole, that's a good shadow, that's a crag of rock. You're, you're not going to see it. I think this cartoon describes the way so many people experience God. I'm setting up all these tests for God. I ask him, nothing happens. I ask him, nothing happens. I think God is nowhere to be found. 
And part of it is, that is your real experience. You've been asking and asking and asking. And for whatever reason, God is not granting you what you ask. But what also has been happening is that your relationship to and your channel to God has been narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until this single tube is the only means by which you can try to understand and apprehend God. And this person, if you are the person in this cartoon, what is the easiest way to correct the problem? They say God's close, but I can't see him. What is the best way to see? It's to get your eye out of that narrow tube and step back. Because sometimes the God who is close is most visible, not through the narrow lens of your little story. And when I say little, I don't say it to demean or belittle it. I'm saying, how can the God of the universe be fully contained and his character fully on display in the snow globe of one human life? How preposterously arrogant and, and presumptuous would it be of us to say, God is entirely tried and measured by the story of my life. Now, that's the only life I have to experience God, to actually get to know him. But there's another view available to me. I can step out of my own story and say, who is this God beyond my story, my disappointments, my pain and heartache, my loss and my gain? Is there a God that transcends my life and is there for all lives? A view of God that is not so narrow that I lose the ability to see him. When we reduce all prayer to just asking for things, this is exactly what happens over time. Because God then gets great. He has a GPA. I, I used to call it God point average. I give God a C minus because I've asked 30 things and I've gotten five. What kind of God is that? How would any relationship in your life feel if the only time that person ever spoke to you is when they were asking you for something? Someone's like, yeah, I, I have people like that in my life. And the truth is, I do. I, most pastors actually have people like that who, uh, it's, it's not, none of you, of course, but <laughs> there are people outside our church. No, we all have people like that, don't we? Who the only time you ever hear from them, and so you could almost say instead of hello, okay, what do you need? And I actually tried doing that to somebody, and he didn't even pause. He goes, oh, thanks. Uh, here's, like, I was actually trying to insult you. you you just took that in stride. Like, do you ever call me just to... And so here's the thing that I think has happened to a lot of people is that we have narrowed the way we try to know God. And so when we hear pray always, it's like, I tried that. It didn't work. And what I'm saying to you in loving challenges, try something else. Try something else. Who is it that said insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results? I ask, I ask, I don't get, I don't get. Where's God? Try different. Do you know that if it's really a relationship we have with God, then the way we talk and listen to God has to reflect the way any relationship actually works. Jesus said a very interesting thing in teaching on prayer. He said, when you pray, I love this translation, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I heard a lot of prayers like this growing up. In that eight-hour prayer session that I <clears throat> voluntarily was a part of, I listened to one person pray for an hour straight 
This is lung capacity that's legendary. This guy prayed one hour straight out loud right next to me. And if you took away all the father gods, I think he said 20 words to God. It was father God, Lord, father God, father, father God, father God, father, Lord, father God. What's up? Father God. I'm not trying to make fun. I'm just saying, look, we think that by stretching out and saying, look, I prayed like eight hours. You actually prayed about 15 minutes. And you said, Father, God, you got, can you imagine how irritating that would be? Like, hey, Dave, Dave, listen, Dave, Dave, listen. Dave, Dave, uh, Pastor Dave, Dave, Lee, Dave, D-man, Dave, right? You'd be like, say it. Just stop calling my name. Say it. What are you actually trying to say to me? But this is what we do. Like, we, some religious traditions actually train people for this. They're called mantras. Just take these things and repeat them over and over. God will eventually have to listen because you won't shut up. Do you think God enjoys that kind of prayer any more than we enjoy giving that kind of prayer? When he says pray continually, I don't think the command is find some empty, shallow words and repeat them over and over until God and you are both sick of it. Because that seems to imply that God measures prayer life in minutes logged or word counts. Now, I'm not saying the goal is to be as efficient and brief as possible. That's not the point. What I'm saying is don't think that we've prayed simply because we have repeated, heaped on, empty words in mindless repetition. That's annoying in any kind of relationship. That's not actual conversation that builds closeness with people. Next time you're praying, think about it this way. If I had a conversation with my closest friend in exactly the way I just talked to God, will we still be friends? to be a wake-up call. I realized this week as I was preparing this message how completely rote and repetitive my prayer for meals has become. It's like this. Every single, and this is three for some of us, three, four, five, six times a day we're praying for food. Here's my prayer at almost every meal. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful meal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's really not any different than just going rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, or let's eat. Emotionally, relationally, there's no difference for me. It's just this thing I feel that I have to do so I don't get indigestion. But what if I started really thinking about what I'm saying, even in something as daily repeated as the prayer for food? So the other day I tried this. I said, God, thank you for making me Korean because this kimchi that smells like exploded bowels, I actually find pleasure in it. And I couldn't, I think, if I weren't born and raised in this ethnicity. But when I eat good kimchi, I rejoice. Everyone else does not when they have to smell my breath. But I rejoice and I think, thank you, God, for giving me the capacity to enjoy this. I don't think everyone can. That's a weird prayer, but it just, it's twisting it up a little just to say I'm not going to be mindless going, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Thank you that I married a woman who can cook because I have prepared literally four meals in 52 years of life. I don't count making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every morning for Zoe as cooking. So I've prepared four meals in my entire earthly journey of life. And yet, I've eaten well every single day of my life. What about you? I've been told 
that one of the best ways to build relationship through conversation is by asking questions. There's two powerful kind of questions that build relationship. One kind of question asks the other person something because my aim is to learn something about them. What's your story? What do you like? What do you hate? What irritates you? What are your pet peeves? What are your favorite habits? What do you do when you have a free day? So these are questions designed to try to get to know the other person. There are questions we can ask God that are designed only to try to learn more about what he's like. And that's one really interesting way to praise. Have you asked God questions designed just to get to know him? But there's another powerful kind of question that we can ask in a relationship that is designed to invite feedback so that I can get to know myself a little bit better. Those are hard questions to ask. How many of you would agree that those self-awareness questions are threatening? I know most of us don't like it because when someone else says, hey, listen, can I talk to you about something? What's the first emotion you feel? Yes! What is it? Is that the first emotion you feel? If I were to come up to you and say, listen, can we grab coffee sometime? I, I really have something I want to talk to you about. Is your first emotion, oh my gosh, already? Really? It's dread. What, what is it? What did I do? What problem do you have with me? Are you going to yell at me? I don't think most of us like feedback. But if you shun feedback, if you avoid it, you will never really understand what you look like and what kind of person you are. So there are questions we can ask of God. I think prayer life becomes so much more interesting when we stop just asking him for stuff and start having a relationship with him. I I started writing a list of questions that I could ask God in prayer that would give him a chance to say things back to me so I could grow. And I came up with a big list. I'm going to share with you a few of them that I think might prompt something in you. Here's one. What are you trying to teach me these days that I'm just failing to learn? Here's another way I can phrase that question. Where am I suffering in a wasted way because I'm not learning what I'm supposed to learn from it? Here's another one. Does my relationship with money honor you, God? I know that maybe other people around me have a lot to say about that, but what about you? How do you feel about my relationship with money? Is there someone in my life that has been consistently kind and faithful to me, but I've just blown them off? Is there someone in my life I need to acknowledge because they have been unwaveringly kind to me, and I've just ignored it? Here's the question I asked recently of the Lord. What can I do practically to show your love to the poor. Uh, You know, we've been doing the reading through the Bible, and as you spend any time in the Old Testament, you can't escape just how obsessed God is with the burden of the poor. And yet I look at churches today, I look at our church, and we do some things, but I don't think that the, the people of God care enough about the poor. And so I've been really wanting God to address that in my heart more and more. And... It's messing with me when I ask the question, what can I do to show your love to the poor? What have I said no to lately, God, that I should have said yes to? How about the other one? What have I said yes to lately that I really should have said no to? Does what I do for a living fulfill your purpose for my life? I know it pays the bills, but... Is this really what you had in mind when you made me in my mother's womb? Was that this would be my life's work and my legacy?
Do you understand that if you begin to ask these questions, it presumes that prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. And that God is more than an ATM or a vending machine. And as we pray this way, something starts to happen that encourages more prayer and more prayer and more prayer. I've got to end soon, so let me give you one last thing. This might be the one most relevant for today, but the hardest to receive. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. On a scale of 1 to 10, how grateful are you today in this moment of your life? Don't shout out a number. I mean, just not do that. But just think about that number for a second. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 meaning I have nothing to be thankful for in this cesspool of an existence called my life. Number 10 is you have all day because I've got a million things to be thankful for. Where's your number? Now, wherever your number is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that I hope you can receive. I think that number in all of our, our hearts has more to say about our attitude and our point of view than about our situation. That's a bold statement, but I think it's true. I've known people who have everything and have no gratitude in their spirit. And I've known people who have nothing and are more grateful than I have ever been. I don't believe gratitude is primarily a reflection of what we have or what we don't have. Gratitude is a perspective, it's a matter of perspective of where our eyes are aimed in any given circumstance. And here's something to take notice of. The way Paul words the command matters, he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. He says give thanks in all circumstances. This is not a call to pretend like you like everything that's happening to you. I don't have to be thankful for everything, but what he says is if you want to follow Jesus and experience the newness of life, grow that relationship you have with him, be more mindful of God's presence in your life, then no matter what is happening, you don't have to be thankful for it, but you still have to be thankful in it. And if you try, if you commit yourself to this, it's it's amazing to see how many ways you can be thankful. I I didn't put this in the slides or in my sermon notes, but I was just thinking about a story I read years ago. There was a preacher in in England way in 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 like 200 years ago. His name was Matthew Henry. And he got mugged one day walking home. And he wrote in his journal, he didn't preach about this, he didn't, but someone found his journal and published these things. He said, thank you that it was me who got robbed and not me doing the robbing. There's there's a silver lining. It's the reason I use this slide background. This guy found the silver lining. He's like, thank you that though they took much, they didn't didn't have much to take. So (laughs) they took everything I had, but it wasn't much. Thank you that they took my money, but not my life. Do you understand? He's gone through a traumatic thing. No one should be thankful for being mugged. But he was thankful in the midst of being mugged. I think this has an amazing power on our lives when even though things are going poorly for us, we say, nonetheless, God is in his heaven and he is here with me. What can I say now that is not an experience of gratitude, but is an expression of thanks nonetheless? And as we begin to aim our eyes and our hearts in those directions, we find that even in the hardest of times, we can see God in our life. 
And I, I believe in this world today, in the climate we're living in, that's more important than it's ever been. Maybe, let me give you two quick things in the midst of suffering you could be thankful for. Paul testifies in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being... When you read stuff like that, you've got to pay attention, guys. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What Paul is saying is not, I found out through the struggle that I am everything I need. But what he's saying is, there's nothing I go through, good or bad, which I find in the end, God cannot bring me through. This is the amazing discovery of hardship survived. Is that there's nothing on this earth that he cannot bring me through, no matter how impossible it feels in the moment. Some of us are still passing through that right now, I need to hear these words. It feels like an impossible pain, but you're still here and you're still breathing. You still have people around you who belong to you and you belong to them. You still have food in your belly and a roof over your head and you're going to make it. And this is proof to you that there's nothing you cannot get through so long as God lives. Here's another thing he says. Not Paul, this is Peter now. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. In other words, hardship tests our faith and shows us something we need to know about ourselves. That this faith that I have is not a fair weather faith, but it lasted through the storm of hardship. That matters, I think. Because a lot of people in our lives will join us for the party and the laughter. Not a lot of people will join us for the pain and the suffering. And it's important for us to know just how we relate to God and how we really feel about Him. And it is through suffering that we discover that the the faith I have and the love I have for God was not a fair-weather faith, but it was real. How many of you guys work out a lot? Anyone? CrossFit, weightlifting. Now, I, when I was in college, I lifted weights for 90 minutes a day with this guy across the hall. I got stronger than I had ever been in my life. I could bench press twice my body weight. Here's the thing, though, I kept thinking is, what's the point of this strength? I, I want to test it. I, mean, I was a young man, so please forgive me. I was like, I want to fight someone. I just really want to know how strong I really am. Because I had mirror muscles, you know, like, who cares about that? I want to know if, if, if we had to throw down, could I take that? I, I would walk through the, the, the whole quad just going, yeah, no, yes, yes, no. I divided the world between people whose butts I could kick and who could kick mine. There's this yearning to know that all of this strength I think I have in me, is it really there? I read stories in martyrdom, and I'm a pastor. This is what I do for a living. It's my calling. And I wonder, could I face death and not renounce Christ as I've read that some people have done? My heart shakes when I read stories like that. And while on one hand I'm inspired, on the other I seriously wonder, 
if Christianity became illegal in this country. Here we are wringing our hands over whether we're going to stay tax exempt. What if it became illegal? What if it became criminal to follow Jesus? And I want to know, is what I have only there because I'm doing well and because I'm free and because it's easy? Or is it really there? You know what reveals that more than anything is hardship. And what Peter is saying, what I believe Paul is saying, is that we can be thankful even in suffering because it reveals things we absolutely need to know about ourselves. Things that will never really be revealed when things are going well. I'm glad to confess that I lost all that muscle, but in the years I had it, I never fought anyone. It's kind of galling because I'm like, I'm not sure. And if any of you want to, you know, put on some pads and let's see what we got in our old days, just go. But I'll never know just what I had in my prime. I like to imagine, but I won't know. But I can be thankful for this. I have been through things that I thought, boy, am I going to see this thing through? I've been asked to step in situations that were so hopeless. I thought, what if I could just tell this person, I, I don't know if I have what it takes to walk with you through this. Your situation's so heavy, I'm scared. And I, I've watched God be faithful through some impossible stuff. I'll end with this. These three commands, these always rules, Rejoice always, pray always, be thankful, give thanks always. Those verbs in the Greek occur in their plural form. While we should live by these things individually, these are commands given to the whole church. They are best obeyed in community, and in my opinion, they are really only able to be obeyed in community. Because here's the truth. When I'm struggling and suffering... I don't always want to rejoice, even though I, I, I know I ought to. I don't want to. And sometimes it takes a friend coming up to me and saying, you know, I know it's hard. God loves you. There is a tomorrow. One day this will be over, and you're going to get through it. Let's find something to be joyful for. You've lost something you thought you couldn't replace. But I want to remind you that you still have things and people that are irreplaceable and they're still with you. Can we focus on that this morning? And I'll make a confession. When people say that to us and we're not in a place to hear that, the greatest temptation is to reject them and say, you're so annoying, get away from me. I don't need to hear that right now. But that's exactly what we need to hear. It's why God has given us each other. Because we don't always dig deep and find the best perspective on our own. Sometimes we absolutely need others to serve us this way, to support us this way, to say, I know you want to just be bitter, but I want to remind you, you have a lot to be thankful for. So when a person does that for you, don't give into the temptation to reject them, to push them away from you. Understand that that person is a true friend. And that what they're doing is one of the most sacrificial acts of love and support they could do. 
They're saying to you, I know you want to give up. I know you want to say, I'm done. I'm saying to you as your brother, as your sister, don't be done. Don't give up. Hang on. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks for what you can be thankful for. But don't quit. Don't give up. And I would have a long time ago if people had not said that to me. I'm sure that's your story as well. So the next time someone takes a risk and says that thing to you which your flesh least wants to hear, look at that person as a friend, a true friend, and let them say to you what your own heart refuses to say. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.